Book Four, Part Four of the Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Andrew Coleman. The Histories by Publius Cornelius Tacitus. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book 4. January to November, A.D. 70. Part 4. Before the murder of Flaccus Hordionius, nothing had come out by which any conspiracy could be discovered. After his death, messengers passed to and fro between Civilis and Classicus, commander of the cavalry of the Treveri. Classicus was first among his countrymen in rank and wealth. He was of a royal house, of a race distinguished both in peace and war and he himself claimed to be by family tradition the foe rather than the ally of the Romans. Julius Tutor and Julius Sabinus joined him in his schemes. One was a Trevor, the other a Lingon. Tutor had been made by Vitellius guardian of the banks of the Rhine. Sabinus, over and above his natural vanity, was inflamed with the pride of an imaginary descent for he asserted that his great-grandmother had by her personal charms attracted the admiration of the divine julius when he was campaigning in gaul these two men held secret conferences to sound the views of the rest of their countrymen and when they had secured as accomplices such as they thought suitable for their purpose they met together in a private house in the colonia agrippinensis for the state in its public policy was strongly opposed to all such attempts. Some, however, of the Ubii and Tungri were present, but the Treveri and Lingones had the greatest weight in the matter, nor could they endure the delay of deliberation. They rivalled each other in vehement assertions that the Romans were in a frenzy of discord, that their legions had been cut to pieces, that Italy was laid waste, that Rome itself was, at that very moment, undergoing capture, while all her armies were occupied by wars of their own, if they were but to secure the passes of the Alps with bodies of troops, Gaul, with her own freedom firmly established, might look about her and fix the limits of her dominion. These views were no sooner stated than approved. As to the survivors of the Vitellianist army, they doubted what to do, Many voted for putting to death men so turbulent and faithless, stained too with the blood of their generals. Still the policy of mercy prevailed. To cut off all hope of quarter might provoke an obstinate resistance. It would be better to draw them into friendly union. If only the legates of the legions were put to death, the remaining multitude, moved by the consciousness of guilt and the hope of escape, would readily join their cause. Such was the outline of their original plan. Emissaries were likewise dispatched throughout Gaul to stir up war, while they themselves feigned submission, that they might be the better able to crush the unsuspecting Vocula. Persons, however, were found to convey information to him, but he had not sufficient strength to suppress the movement, as the legions were incomplete in numbers and disloyal. So, what with soldiers of doubtful fidelity and secret enemies, he thought it best, under the circumstances, to make his way by meeting deceit with deceit, 
and by using the same arts with which he was himself assailed. He therefore went down to the Colonia Agrippinenses. Thither Claudius Labio, who, as I have related, had been taken prisoner and sent out of the province into the country of the Frisii, made his escape by bribing his jailers. This man undertook, if a force were given him, to enter the Batavian territory and bring back to the Roman alliance the more influential part of that state. But, though he obtained a small force of infantry and cavalry, he did not venture to attempt anything among the Batavi, but only induced some of the Nervii and Batazii to take up arms, and made continual attacks on the Canine Fates and the Masaki more in the way of robbery than of war. Lord on by the treacherous representations of the Gauls, Vocula marched against the enemy. He was near the old camp when Classicus and Tutor, who had gone on in advance under the pretense of reconnoitring, concluded an agreement with the German chiefs. They then for the first time separated themselves from the legions, and formed a camp of their own, with a separate line of entrenchment, while Vocula protested that the power of Rome was not so utterly shaken by civil war as to have become contemptible even to Trevery and Lingones. There are still, he said, faithful provinces, victorious armies, the fortune of the empire, and avenging gods. Thus it was that Sacrevere and the Idui in former days, Vindex and the Gauls in more recent times, were crushed in a single battle. The breakers of treaties may look for the vengeance of the same deities, and the same doom. Julius and Augustus understood far better the character of the people. Galba's policy and the diminution of their tribute have inspired them with hostile feelings. They are now enemies, because their yoke is easy. When they have been plundered and stripped, they will be friends. After uttering this defiance, finding that Classicus and Tutor persisted in their treachery, he changed his line of march and retired to Novesium. The Gauls encamped at a distance of two miles and plied with bribes the centurions and soldiers who visited them there, striving to make a Roman army commit the unheard-of baseness of swearing allegiance to foreigners, and pledge itself to the perpetration of this atrocious crime by murdering or imprisoning its officers. Vocula, though many persons advised him to escape, thought it best to be bold, and summoning an assembly, spoke as follows. Never! When I have addressed you, have I felt more anxious for your welfare, never more indifferent about my own. Of the destruction that threatens me I can hear with cheerfulness. And amidst so many evils I look forward to death as the end of my sufferings. For you I feel shame and compassion. Against you, indeed, no hostile ranks are gathering, that would be but the lawful course of war, and the right which an enemy may claim. But Classicus hopes to wage with your strength his war against Rome, and proudly offers to your allegiance an empire of Gaul. Though our fortune and courage have for the moment failed us, have we so utterly forgotten the old memories of those many times when the legions of Rome resolved to perish but not to be driven from their post. Often have our allies endured to see their cities destroyed, 
and with their wives and children, to die in the flames, with only this reward in their death, the glory of untarnished loyalty. At this very moment, our legions at the old camp are suffering the horrors of famine and of siege, and cannot be shaken by threats or by promises. We, besides our arms, our numbers, and the singular strength of our fortifications, have corn and supplies sufficient for a campaign however protracted. We had lately money enough even to furnish a donative and whether you choose to refer the bounty to Vitellius or Vespasian, it was at any rate from a Roman emperor that you received it. If you, who have been victorious in so many campaigns, who have so often routed the enemy at Gelduba and at the old camp, yet shrink from battle, this indeed is an unworthy fear. Still you have an entrenched camp. You have fortifications and the means of prolonging the war till succouring armies pour in from the neighbouring provinces. It may be that I do not satisfy you. You may fall back on other legates or tribunes, on some centurion, even on some common soldier. Let not this monstrous news go forth to the whole world, that with you in their train, Civilis and Classicus, are about to invade Italy. Should the Germans and the Gauls lead you to the walls of the capital, will you lift up arms against your country? My soul shudders at the imagination of so horrible a crime. Will you mount guard for Tutor the Trevor? Shall a Batavian give the signal for battle? Will you serve as recruits in the German battalions? What will be the issue of your wickedness when the Roman legions are marshalled against you? Will you be a second-time deserters, a second-time traitors, and breathe the anger of heaven while you waver between your old and your new allegiance? I implore and entreat thee, O Jupiter, supremely good and great, to whom through eight hundred and twenty years we have paid the honours of so many triumphs, and thou, Quirinus, father of Rome, that, if it be not your pleasure that this camp should be preserved pure and inviolate under my command, you will at least not suffer it to be polluted and defiled by a tutor and a classicus. Grant that the soldiers of Rome may either be innocent of crime, or at least experience a repentance speedy and without remorse. They received his speech with feelings that varied between hope, fear, and shame. Vocula then left them, and was preparing to put an end to his life when his freedmen and slaves prevented him from anticipating by his own act a most miserable death. Classicus dispatched one Emilius Longinus, a deserter from the First Legion, and speedily accomplished the murder. With respect to the two legates, Herennius and Numisius, it was thought enough to put them in chains. Classicus then assumed the insignia of Roman imperial power, and entered the camp. Hardened though he was to every sort of crime, he could only find words enough to go through the form of oath. All who were present swore allegiance to the empire of Gaul. He distinguished the murderer of Vocula by high promotion, and the others by rewards proportioned their services in crime. 
Tutor and Classicus then divided the management of the war between them. Tutor, investing the Colonia Agrippinensis with a strong force, compelled the inhabitants and all the troops in the Upper Rhine to take the same oath. He did this after having first put to death the tribunes at Mogantiacum, and driven away the prefect of the camp, because they refused obedience. Classicus picked out all the most unprincipled men from the troops who had capitulated, and bade them go to the besieged, and offer them quarter, if they would accept the actual state of affairs. Otherwise there was no hope for them. They would have to endure famine, the sword, and the direst extremities. The messengers whom he sent supported their representations by their own example. The ties of loyalty on the one hand, and the necessities of famine on the other, kept the besieged wavering between the alternatives of glory and infamy. While they thus hesitated, all usual and even unusual kinds of food failed them, for they had consumed their horses and beasts of burden, and all the other animals, which, though unclean and disgusting, necessity compelled them to use. At last they tore up shrubs and roots, and the grass that grew between the stones, and thus showed an example of patience under privations, till at last they shamefully tarnished the lustre of their fame by sending envoys to Cavillis to beg for their lives. Their prayers were not heard, till they swore allegiance to the empire of Gaul. Cavillis then stipulated for the plunder of the camp, and appointed guards who were to secure the treasure, the camp followers, and the baggage, and accompany them as they departed, stripped of everything. About five miles from the spot, the Germans rose upon them, and attacked them as they marched without thought of danger. The bravest were cut down where they stood, the greater part, as they were scattered in flight. The rest made their escape to the camp, while Cavillis certainly complained of the proceeding, and upbraided the Germans with breaking faith by this atrocious act. Whether this was mere hypocrisy, or whether he was unable to restrain their fury, is not positively stated. They plundered, and then fired their camp, and all who survived the battle, the flames destroyed. Then Cavillus fulfilled a vow often made by barbarians. His hair, which he had let grow long and coloured with a red dye from the day of taking up arms against Rome, he now cut short, when the destruction of the legions had been accomplished. It was also said that he set up some of the prisoners as marks for his little son to shoot at with the child's arrows and javelins. He neither took the oath of allegiance to Gaul himself, nor obliged any Batavian to do so, for he relied on the resources of Germany, and felt that, should it be necessary to fight for empire with the Gauls, he should have on his side a great name and superior strength. Munius Lupercus, legate of one of the legions, was sent along with other gifts to Veleda, a maiden of the tribe of the Bructuri, who possessed extensive dominion. For by ancient usage, the Germans attributed to many of their women prophetic powers, and, as the superstition grew in strength, even actual divinity. The authority of Veleda was then at its height, 
because she had foretold the success of the Germans and the destruction of the legions. Lupicus, however, was murdered on the road. A few of the centurions and tribunes, who were natives of Gaul, were reserved as hostages for the maintenance of the alliance. The winter encampments of the auxiliary infantry and cavalry and of the legions, with the sole exception of those at Mongartiacum and Vindonissa, were pulled down and burnt. The 16th legion, with the auxiliary troops that capitulated at the same time, received orders to march from Novicium to the colony of the Treveri, a day having been fixed by which they were to quit the camp. The whole of this interval they spent in many anxious thoughts. Their cowards trembled to think of those who had been massacred at the old camp. The better men blushed with shame at the infamy of their position. "'What a march is this before us!' they cried. "'Who will lead us on our way? Our all is at the disposal of those whom we have made our masters for life or death.' Others, without the least sense of their disgrace, stowed away about their persons their money, and what else they prized most highly, while some got their arms in readiness, and girded on their weapons as if for battle. While they were thus occupied, the time for their departure arrived, and proved even more dismal than their anticipation. For in their entrenchments their woeful appearance had not been so noticeable. The open plain and the light of day revealed their disgrace. The images of the emperors were torn down. The standards were borne along without their usual honours, while the banners of the Gauls glittered on every side. The train moved on in silence, like a long funeral procession. Their leader was Claudius Sanctus. One of his eyes had been destroyed. He was repulsive in countenance, and even more feeble in intellect. The guilt of the troops seemed to be doubled, when the other legion, deserting the camp at Bonner, joined their ranks. When the report of the capture of the legions became generally known, all who but a short time before trembled at the name of Rome, rushed forth from the fields and houses, and spread themselves everywhere to enjoy with extravagant delight the strange spectacle. The Picentian horse could not endure the triumph of the insulting rabble, and disregarding the promises and threats of Sanctus, rode off to Mogartiacum. Chancing to fall in with Longinus, the murderer of Vocula, they overwhelmed him with a shower of darts, and thus made a beginning towards a future expiation of their guilt. The legions did not change the direction of their march, and encamped under the walls of the colony of the Treveri. Elated with their success, Civilis and Classicus doubted whether they should not give up the Colonia Agrippinensis to be plundered by their troops. Their natural ferocity and lust for spoil prompted them to destroy the city. But the necessities of war, and the advantage of a character for clemency to men founding a new empire, forbade them to do so. Civilis was also influenced by recollections of kindness received. For his son, who at the beginning of the war had been arrested in the colony, had been kept in honourable custody. But the tribes beyond the Rhine disliked the place for its wealth and increasing power, and held that the only possible way of putting an end to war would be 
either to make it an open city for all Germans, or to destroy it, and so disperse the Ubii. Upon this, the Tanktory, a tribe separated by the Rhine from the colony, sent envoys with orders to make known their instructions to the Senate of the Agrippinenses. These orders, the boldest spirit among the ambassadors, thus expounded. For your return into the unity of the German nation and name, we give thanks to the gods whom we worship in common and to Mars, the chief of our divinities, and we congratulate you that at length you will live as free men among the free. Up to this day have the Romans closed river and land, and, in a way, the very air, that they may bar our converse and prevent our meetings, or, what is a still worse insult to men born to arms, may force us to assemble unarmed and all but stripped, watched by sentinels and taxed for the privilege. But, that our friendship and union may be established for ever, we require of you to strip your city of its walls, which are the bulwarks of slavery. Even savage animals, if you keep them in confinement, forget their natural courage. We require of you to massacre all Romans within your territory. Liberty and a dominant race cannot well exist together. Let the property of the slain come into a common stock, so that no one may be able to secrete anything, or to detach his own interest from ours. Let it be lawful for us and for you to inhabit both banks of the Rhine, as it was of old for our ancestors. As nature has given light and air to all men, so has she thrown open every land to the brave. Resume the manners and customs of your country, renouncing the pleasures through which, rather than through their arms, the Romans secure their power against subject nations. A pure and untainted race, forgetting your past bondage, you will be the equals of all, or will even rule over others. The inhabitants of the colony took time for deliberation and, as dread of the future, would not allow them to accept the offered terms, while their actual condition forbade an open and contemptuous rejection, they replied to the following effect. The very first chance of freedom that presented itself we seized with more eagerness than caution, that we might unite ourselves with you and the other Germans, our kinsmen by blood, with respect to our fortifications, as at this very moment the Roman armies are assembling, it is safer for us to strengthen than to destroy them. All strangers from Italy or the provinces that may have been in our territory have either perished in the war or have fled to their own homes. As for those who in former days settled here and have been united to us by marriage, and as for their offspring, this is their native land. We cannot think you so unjust as to wish that we should slay our parents, our brothers, and our children. All duties and restrictions on trade we repeal. Let there be a free passage across the river, but let it be during the daytime and for persons unarmed, 
till the new and recent privileges assume by usage the stability of time. As arbiters between us, we will have Cavillis and Veleda. Under their sanction the treaty shall be ratified. The Tanctuary were thus appeased, and ambassadors were sent with presents to Cavillis and Veleda, who settled everything to the satisfaction of the inhabitants of the colony. They were not, however, allowed to approach or address Veleda herself. In order to inspire them with more respect, they were prevented from seeing her. She dwelt in a lofty tower, and one of her relatives, chosen for the purpose, conveyed, like the messenger of a divinity, the questions and answers. Thus strengthened by his alliance with the Colonia Agrippinensis, Civilis resolved to attach to himself the neighbouring states, or to make war on them, if they offered any opposition. He occupied the territory of the Sunniki, and formed the youth of the country into regular cohorts. To hinder his further advance, Claudius Labio encountered him with a hastily assembled force of Batazii, Tungri, and Nervii, relying on the strength of his position, as he had occupied a bridge over the river Mosa. They fought in a narrow defile without any decided result, till the Germans swam across and attacked Labio's rear. At the same moment, Civilis, acting either on some bold impulse or by a preconcerted plan, rushed into the Tungrian column, exclaiming in a loud voice, We have not taken arms in order that the Batavi and Treveri may rule over their nations. Far from us be such arrogance, except our alliance. I am ready to join your ranks, whether you would prefer me to be your general or your comrade. The multitude was moved by the appeal, and were beginning to sheathe their swords, when Campanus and Juvenalis, two of the Tungrian chieftains, surrendered the whole tribe to Cavillis. Labio made his escape before he could be intercepted. The Petazii and Nervii, also capitulating, were incorporated by Cavillis into his army. He now commanded vast resources, as the states were either completely cowed or else were naturally inclined in his favour. Meanwhile, Julius Sabinus, after having thrown down the pillars that recorded the treaty with Rome, bade his followers salute him as emperor, and hastened at the head of a large and undisciplined crowd of his countrymen to attack the Sequani, a neighbouring people, still faithful to Rome. The Sequani did not decline the contest. Fortune favoured the better cause, and the Ligones were defeated. Sabinus fled from the battle with a cowardice equal to the rashness with which he had precipitated it, and in order to spread a report of his death, he set fire to a country house where he had taken refuge. It was believed that he there perished by a death of his own seeking, the various shifts by which he contrived to conceal himself and to prolong his life for nine years, the firm fidelity of his friends, and the noble example of his wife Epinina, I shall relate in their proper place. By this victory of the Sequani, the tide of war was stayed. The states began by decrees to recover their senses, and to reflect on the claims of justice and of treaties. The Remi were foremost in this movement, announcing throughout Gaul that deputies were to be sent to consult in common assembly whether they should make freedom or peace their object. At Rome, report exaggerated all these disasters, 
and disturbed Mucianus with the fear that the generals, though distinguished men, for he had already appointed Gallus Annius and Petilius Cerealis to the command, would be unequal to the weight of so vast a war. Yet the capital could not be left without a ruler, and men feared the ungoverned passions of Domitian, while Primus Antonius and Varus Arius were also, as I have said, objects of suspicion. Varus, who had been made commander of the Praetorian Guard, had still at his disposal much military strength. Mucianus ejected him from his office, and, not to leave him without consolation, made him superintendent of the sale of corn. To pacify the feelings of Domitian, which were not unfavourable to Varus, he appointed Aretinus Clemens, who was closely connected with the house of Vespasian, and who was also a great favourite with Domitian, to the command of the Praetorian Guard, alleging that his father, in the reign of Caligula, had admirably discharged the duties of that office. The old name, he said, would please the soldiers, and Clemens himself, though on the role of senators, would be equal to both duties. He selected the most eminent men in the state to accompany him, while others were appointed through interest. At the same time, Domitian and Mucianus prepared to set out, but in a very different mood. Domitian in all the hope and impatience of youth, Mucianus ever contriving delays to check his ardent companion, who he feared, were he to intrude himself upon the army, might be led by the recklessness of youth or by bad advisers, to compromise at once the prospects of war and of peace. Two of the victorious legions, the sixth and eighth, the twenty-first, which belonged to the Vitellianist army, the second, which consisted of new levies, were marched into Gaul, some over the Pennine and Cotian, some over the Graian Alps. The fourteenth legion was summoned from Britain, and the sixth and tenth from Spain. Thus rumours of an advancing army, as well as their own temper, inclined the states of Gaul, which assembled in the country of the Remi to more peaceful councils. Envoys from the Treveri were awaiting them there, and among them Tullius Valentinus, the most vehement promoter of the war, who in a set speech poured forth all the charges usually made against great empires, and levelled against the Roman people many insulting and exasperating expressions. The man was a turbulent fermenter of sedition, and pleased many by his frantic eloquence. On the other hand, Julius Auspex, one of the leading chieftains among the Remi, dwelt on the power of Rome and the advantages of peace, pointing out that war might be commenced indeed by cowards, but must be carried on at the peril of the braver spirits. And that the Roman legions were close at hand, he restrained the most prudent by considerations of respect and loyalty, and held back the younger by representations of danger and appeals to fear. The result was that, while they extolled the spirit of Valentinus, they followed the counsels of Auspex. It is certain that the Treveri and Lingones were injured in the eyes of the Gallic nations by their having sided with Virginius in the movement of Vindex. Many were deterred by the mutual jealousy of the provinces. 
Where, they asked, could a head be found for the war? Where could they look for civil authority and the sanction of religion? If all went well with them, what city could they select as the seat of empire? The victory was yet to be gained. Dissension had already begun. One state angrily boasted of its alliances, another of its wealth and military strength, or of the antiquity of its origin. Disgusted with the prospect of the future, they acquiesced in their present condition. Letters were written to the Treasury in the name of the states of Gaul, requiring them to abstain from hostilities, and reminding them that pardon might yet be obtained, and that friends were ready to intercede for them, should they repent. Valentinus still opposed, and succeeded in closing the ears of his countrymen to this advice, though he was not so diligent in preparing for war, as he was assiduous in haranguing. Accordingly, neither the Treveri, the Lingones, nor the other revolted states took measures at all proportioned to the magnitude of the peril they had incurred. Even their generals did not act in concert. Civilis was traversing the pathless wilds of the Belgi in attempting to capture Claudius Labio, or to drive him out of the country. Classicus, for the most part, wasted his time in indolent repose, as if he had only to enjoy an empire already won. Even Tutor made no haste to occupy with troops the upper bank of the Rhine and the passes of the Alps. Meanwhile, the twenty-first legion, by way of Vindonissa, and Sextilius Felix with the auxiliary infantry by way of Raetia, penetrated into the province. They were joined by the Singularian horse, which had been raised some time before by Vitellius, and had afterwards gone over to the side of Vespasian. Their commanding officer was Julius Briganticus. He was sister's son to Cavillis, and he was hated by his uncle, and hated him in return with all the extreme bitterness of a family feud. Tutor, having augmented the army of the Treveri with fresh levies from the Vangiones, the Caracates, and the Triboci, strengthened it with a force of veteran infantry and cavalry. Men from the legions whom he had either corrupted by promises or overborne by intimidation. Their first act was to cut to pieces a cohort, which had been sent on in advance by Sextilius Felix. Soon afterwards, however, on the approach of the Roman generals at the head of their army, they returned to their duty by an act of honourable desertion, and the Triboci, Vangiones, and Caracates followed their example. Avoiding Mongatiacum, Tutor retired with the Treveri to Bingium, trusting to the strength of the position, as he had broken down the bridge of the river Nava. A sudden attack, however, was made by the infantry under the command of Sextilius. A ford was discovered, and he found himself betrayed and routed. The Treveri were panic-stricken by this disaster and the common people threw down their arms and dispersed themselves through the country. Some of the chiefs, anxious to seem the first to cease from hostilities, fled to those states which had not renounced the Roman alliance. The legions which had been removed, as I have before related, from Novicium and Bonner to the territory of the Treveri, voluntarily swore allegiance to Vespasian. These proceedings took place in the absence of Valentinus, 
when he returned, full of fury and bent on again throwing everything into confusion and ruin, the legions withdrew to the Media Matrici, a people in alliance with Rome. Valentinus and Tutor again involved the Treveri in war, and murdered the two legates, Herennius and Numisius, that by diminishing the hope of pardon, they might strengthen the bond of crime. End of Book 4 Part 4